Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Luke chapter 19 as we continue our way through Christ. Coming to Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, we're going to be in verses 41 through 48. As we look at Jesus exercising his authority as he enters into Jerusalem. Edward Buxton writes in the Reader's Digest back in March of 1980 of a man named Robert Robert Wood Johnson. He was the former chairman of Johnson & Johnson. Many of us know that company, Johnson & Johnson. He was known to be a terror when he inspected his plants, his industrial plants. On one such unannounced visit, the plant manager had a fortunate 30-minute tip prior to his arrival. Hastily, he had things spruced up by ordering several large rolls of paper transported to the roof of the building. So he wanted to get rid of these, all this paper hanging around, so he threw it up on the roof. So as he walked around, the, Mr. Johnson would not be able to see it. However, when Johnson arrived, he was furious. What in the world is all this junk on the roof, he asked, were his first words. How were they to know that he would land on the, on the, would come in his helicopter and land on the roof? Surprise inspections are no fun. I don't know if you've ever had to be part of one of those. It can conjure up all sorts of emotions and responses. However, surprise inspections and just inspections in general are a part of life, whether in school, at home, and work, and so on and so forth. It's also important to know that one day all of humanity will one day stand before the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Over the last two weeks, we considered how Jesus fulfills the office of prophet and priest and king. Until the time of Christ, God had appointed men to mediate his kingdom. Yet time and time again, we read how these men failed in their duties and responsibility. Well, we're thinking of of, uh, Samuel or David or Solomon or so on and so forth. Yahweh promised that there will be a day when he would send his anointed one to perfectly perform these offices or roles. We need a prophet to declare the commands of the Father, a priest to reconcile us to the Father, to to help us understand how we are to approach God in worship, and a king who would come to rule and bring in righteousness and peace. These are the things that we need. Luke has pointed out that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is the one who can make right that which was wrong, fix that which is broken. In addition to these offices, Jesus also serves as the Savior who comes to redeem God's children. Now, as we come now to today's passage, Luke records the events of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. His journey is almost complete. It is the last week of his earthly ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. It is Sunday, and Jesus, as he enters into the city, remember two weeks ago, in triumph with people proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus is ready to exercise his authority as the king, the prophet, and priest of God. As he takes time to make two inspections on that Sunday. Jesus is ready to use that authority to make right was wrong, to fix that which was broken. We will once again see his use of authority will be questioned and eventually lead to his death very soon. So with that, we're going to read just the first four verses there, Luke 19, 41 through 44. And Luke writes, and when he, speaking of Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and you will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, strong words and strong emotions from our Savior. Father, as he enters that city and he sees Jerusalem and he recognizes the heart of the people, not yet ready to receive him as you have called him to come. Open up our minds and hearts to do the the hard work of looking at this passage, considering it, interpreting, and then applying it to our lives. Lord, knowing that you have called us to not only just to be here to, to learn something new about information, but this is about life and transformation in our hearts and our soul. And so I pray that you would do that work through your spirit this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So two inspections. The first inspection we just read about is the city itself of Jerusalem. Once again, Jesus demonstrates his divine desire and his human emotions, this time concerning the city Jerusalem. In his lament, he expresses his divine desire for them to accept him as the Messiah and the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise. Now, at first glance, we say, wait a second, wasn't there just a bunch of people who were praising him, laying down palm branches, laying down their coats and just praising him and welcoming him in? Well, that is true. But the majority of those were the people who had traveled from Galilee and he had a, 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 who had followed him from uh, Galilee down to Jerusalem on his way to Jerusalem. So these are people who had known him, seen him and witnessed his miracles for for some time. However, in just a few days, the majority of the crowd of Jerusalem is going to cry out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. He also moans that these things have been hidden from their sight due to their disobedience. Their disobedience had put scales in their eyes and they could not see Jesus for who he truly was. And also his, their disobedience, this disobedience and failure to accept them, he understands, will eventually lead to the destruction of the city. The people milling around and, 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 and finding, you know, the, the, the camaraderie of being in Jerusalem in that day and, and seeing the beauty of the city were not understanding or realizing that in short, what, 40 years, that city will be just totally destroyed. For us, the Jerusalem, we need to understand, is the city of David. It was the chosen capital of the nation. It was chosen by God and it was intended to be a light to the Gentiles, It was the site of the temple, the visible focus of the worship 
of Israel's God, the one true and living God. In Psalms 48, David sings, sings, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion is another term for Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of the great king with her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Jerusalem was a place that the Jews, the Hebrew children, looked forward to. It's a place that God had set his presence. It is first mentioned the city of Jerusalem in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1, though it's probably the same city known as Salem in Genesis 14, 18, when we talked about Melchizedek last week. As the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan, the city was inhabited by the Jebusites. So when Joshua and the Israelites went in, as you might remember from our study in Joshua several years ago, they did not conquer Jerusalem. It, was, it had a different people there, the Jebusites. In 2 Samuel, King David finally captures the city and makes it the capital and becomes known as the city of David. It was Jerusalem where the anointed one of the Lord would appear. In Zechariah chapter 8, 3, Yahweh proclaims, I have returned to Zion, to Jerusalem, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Jerusalem of all the cities has a special place in the heart of God. It will be where he will once again return from the millennium and reign and will be the capital, not only the whole earth, but also for the new earth when that passes away. However, as Jesus enters the city of David, the holy mountain of God, Jerusalem is a place of rejection of Jesus. It had ignored and killed the prophets of God for generations. And Jesus will be no exception. Jerusalem has been betrayed as a place that Jesus will be betrayed, mocked, and beaten and die. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus, knowing what awaits him at the city, he's been looking forward. This is his place of destination, but he understands what awaits him in this city of God that kills its own prophets. Professor Thomas Schreiner writes, you'll see here on the monitor, that the people of the city of peace could have known the things that bring peace. They could have embraced the prince of peace, the one who will bring everlasting peace, but Israel on the whole, and Jerusalem in particular, has rejected that message. The people do not know the things of peace because they do not know the one who brings peace. And as a consequence, they now face judgment. God is hiding the truth from them because they have already rejected it. So instead of receiving the peace and liberty they so desired, that which they anticipated with the coming of the Messiah, they will once again see their city destroyed and the people scattered as it was hundreds of years prior. 
As the prophet, as the prophet, as the prophet, excuse me, Jesus proclaims that their enemies will lay siege and destroy the city, as we read her earlier. John MacArthur points out that this is precisely the method used by Titus when he laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70, just another 40 years uh, hence. He surrounded the city on April 9th cutting off all supplies and trapping thousands of people who had been in Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The Romans systematically built embankments around the city. They built up hills against the, against the walls, gradually starving the city's inhabitants. The Romans held the city in this manner through the summer, defeating various sections of the city one by one, the final overthrow of the city occurred in early September. So as a prophet, uh, doing the office of a prophet, Jesus declares the future. In AD 135 AD, or 135 AD, the Jews again will rebel against the Romans, only to be defeated and expelled from the land that God had granted to them, and the temple would be fully destroyed. Jerusalem itself would be scattered, every piece of the wall broken down. First inspection is a city that kills its prophets, Jerusalem. The second inspection that Jesus does as he enters in on that Sunday morning is that of the temple. Look at Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> beginning in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, walking into the temple would have been a very sensory experience. As you and I would walk into the temple, if we were there in those days, the smell of the animals, the noise of the crowds, walking and shouting and talking, preparing for the Passover and the sacrifices. Now, as we mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, one minute. Now, as we mentioned two weeks ago, Jerusalem population is going to soar to almost 2 million people. Jews from around all the countryside and even the world would make that once a year pilgrimage for Passover and the Day of Atonement when the high priest would make a sacrifice for the Jews. They had celebrated this event since leaving Egypt. You might recall it was first observed on the night of the last plague that God brought against Pharaoh in Egypt. God had made it a command to observe this special day from then on. In the beginning, it was performed at the tabernacle until Solomon finally built the temple. Remember, the tabernacle was the tent that Moses had set up. But then Solomon built the temple 400 years after they left Egypt. And after the king of Israel was conquered, or after the king of Israel was conquered and the Jews scattered around the known world, they would still make this annual journey to Jerusalem for that special day. Now, <clears throat> now you've got to remember that two million people, they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem. And so what they would do is they would purchase the animals needed for the sacrifice from the cattlemen and the shepherds rather than traveling with them from a long distance. You can imagine how difficult and arduous that would be. This was a practical choice that was wise since travel in those days was very difficult and dangerous. They would also need to exchange their Roman coins that they would use for the currency and they needed for the temple tax that was instituted in the book of 
exodus. They would need a shekel. The problem was is that the sellers and the exchangers would take advantage of these travelers with the knowledge and consent of the high priest who approved and authorized their booth. This is what angered Jesus. It's not the practice of business that Jesus was upset, but with the location and with the practice of what they were doing is not just outside, but inside the court. Understand Jesus' reaction is important to first note that the purpose of the temple, along with the court of Gentiles where it was taking place. The temple was the central focus of Jewish life and worship. The first temple was built by Solomon, but was destroyed in 587 BC by the Babylonians. The second temple was built when some of the Jews were allowed back to the exiles as we were to go and look at the book of Ezra, but desecrated in 165 BC by by Antiochus Epiphanes. Herod began rebuilding the temple in 20 BC and was still a work in progress even in Jesus' time. It was again destroyed by the Roman soldiers in 70 AD. This is the second time as you and I read scriptures, the gospel, that Jesus cleaned out the temple because he did once earlier in his ministry in John chapter 2. To understand Jesus' passion for the temple, we need to understand this. Look at here in the monitor. Is that the temple was symbolic of God's presence with man. It was to be a place where temporarily man could be reconciled with God through that sacrificial system. You might remember the tabernacle and the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple, that God's presence actually came and dwelt there. Now the temple had through the actions of its leaders, though some had had become guilty of really faulty advertising by not doing what they were intended to do. It was intended to be a place of prayer and a light to all nations, to draw God's people to himself. But however, at this time, it had not been so. So as Jesus enters and he expects, it is not what he expected it to be. It's not what it should have been. It became a place where people were using it to cheat others. I want to give two reasons for Jesus' anger. We kind of just mentioned it, but I want to give a little bit more background. First, the temple was a place of prayer for all of God's people. Jesus quotes two passages in the Old Testament there. It is written, my house shall not be called a house of prayer, or my my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, as well as not a den of thieves or robbers. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 56, if you would please. Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, looking at verse 6, the prophet says, And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who already gathered. It was a place to come and and pray, to align themselves with God, to to give their thanks and gratitude and worship, and also to give their their prayers a supplication of, of thanksgiving and desires. But the temple was also to bring salvation for foreigners and strangers to the covenant. 
in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8. He says, you have come and stand before me in this house. It is called by my name. You say we are delivered. However, it has now become a den of robbers in your house or in, my, in your eyes. Instead of doing and drawing people to it, they are using it for false purposes. The temple service did require provisions to be made by getting what was needed for the sacrifices. Animals, wood, oil, especially for pilgrims traveling a great distance. Money changers would convert the standard Greek and Roman currency into the money needed for the temple. But now they're charging excessive rates. They're using the court of Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could come and, and see a, just a, a glimpse of the glory of God, and they've used it and made it into a den of thieves. By allowing this practice, they broke the solemn worship and prayers that was happening in the adjoining courts. This is not the purpose of the temple. In Malachi chapter 3, we see that the cleaning of the temple was actually one of the fulfillments. Here we see that, behold, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me, speaking of, of John the Baptist. However, he says, the Lord will also suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming. Who can endure his coming? Who can stand before him when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests who had become corrupt, and will refine them like gold and silver. The messenger prophesied as John the Baptist, while the title, the Lord whom you seek, is that of Messiah. You see, the temple worship has lost its true focus, and Jesus must once again purify it. Dr. Schreiner goes on to note that this Coming is a moment not of celebration, but of judgment. For things at the temple are not as they should be. The past sins of Israel in the temple have been repeated by the next new generation. Luke's accounting of Jesus coming to the temple is brief if you compare it with Matthew and Mark's. Jesus comes to drive out those buying and selling the temple has become a place of financial profit instead of meeting with God and a place devoted to prayer. Perhaps the cleansing of the temple anticipates its destruction that Jesus predicts, he writes. If so, this cleansing is a prophetic action symbolizing the temple's destruction as well as the priest, the high priest of God, coming in and doing the proper things. But as we see, Jesus finishes his two inspections, one of Jerusalem and the other of the temple, and he finds them wanting, and he pronounces judgment. Again, his words and actions, though, bring forth active hostility from the religious leaders. As we continue in Luke chapter 19, look at verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were still seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We have pointed out two weeks ago that in John's gospel, 
We read that after raising Lazarus from the dead, that the religious leaders had put in motion a plan to kill him. They had sent out word, if you see Jesus, let us know. We want to look for a reason to arrest him. His teaching in the temple where they knew he was day by day, but yet they were still afraid to implement their plan because people were hanging on his every word, which is striking. They were misusing Jerusalem. They were misusing the temple. But still, there was something about Jesus that they hung on his word. They understood that there was a power. There was an authority there. And obviously, some came to know and became followers, while others would eventually reject him. Now, as you and I read this passage today, Jerusalem is a divided city. And the temple is a pile of rubbles. A Muslim, a mosque sits on it today. One day, though, Christ will return and restore both of them, both Jerusalem and the temple, to a greater glory than they experienced even during the days of Solomon. They will once again be the city of God and his dwelling place. People of every nation will flock to its gates and kings will bow down and give reverence to the king of kings. Amen? Amen. We are called to pray for Christ's quick return for that is our hope and our anticipation. Luke is teaching us here that Yahweh expects that which, that which he has sanctified, set apart to fulfill their purposes. It also warns us that Jesus will one day conduct an inspection. You and I need to understand that there are still some inspections that are left to be taken. Sanctify, the word sanctify means to be set apart. The word sanctification means setting apart to holiness or making righteous. In our case, through Christ, we as believers have been sanctified. And so as we look at this passage and we understand how we're to interpret it, is that that which Jesus has sanctified will one day be inspected to see if it's doing as it is advertised. Is it it fulfilling the purposes of which God has set up? Wayne Grumman, and we're going to spend some time here on this, is he defines that word sanctification, and you can keep this up, Ben, for a bit, is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, I want to consider that phrase. What is sanctification? Because it's important. If he is going to inspect us, if he's going to inspect that which he has sanctified, then we need to understand what it is. So first, sanctification is we're going to break it up. It's a progressive work of God. That's so important. It is a work that progresses over time. Once you and I have that new birth, we accept Christ. We're regenerated. We are born again. We do not become sinless. All of us know that, right? We still have sin in us. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin. But the presence of sin is still within us. And so we know that it will take our whole lives to become more like Christ. That does not happen until death. So it's a progressive work in which we grow stronger and stronger each day. But as we are mentioned in our adult core class, and again, let me take a a moment for an advertisement. We'll be starting our summer series next week, 11-week series on the assurance of faith, how you can know if you have the new birth, if you've been born again, if you have saved. I know many people many times doubt 
their salvation. But I would encourage you, 9.45 to 10.30, it's a great class. We'll be starting it next Sunday. But we need to understand that it's progressive. There will be times and seasons where we will not feel saved, where we not feel sanctified. There will be times where we will doubt that. However, what we need to understand is that it's a progressive work of God that happens during our whole life. Again, not only is it a possessive work, but it's one of God in which God is the main impetus. He is the one that is changing us, but there is a part of us in which we need to respond. And we'll talk about that near the end. We need to yield to him. We need to put off. We need to put on. We need to respond to the work that he's doing. But it also makes us more and more free from our sin. In other words, he's broken the power of Satan. He's broken the power. We're no longer in the, sla- in the chains of, of sin, but we now are slaves of Christ. And so with that, we now can say no. We can do battle. Hebrew tells us, you have not yet battled to the point of shedding blood. So many of us, when the temptations come, we give up too quickly instead of fighting it. But just like anyone who's lifting weights, you can't do much at the beginning, but you continually go. You continually fight through it. And as you go on, eventually you're lifting more and more weights and lifting more and more reps. But it's a work of God and man. He makes us more free from sin. Not free from sin, but more free from sin in which we can fight it. We can say no. We can do battle with our sin. That's why I encourage you, if you're struggling with a sin today, do not lose hope and say, well, that's what you're going to have to live with all your life. God may never take that particular temptation fully away, but he will make it lesser and lesser as we strengthen our hearts and our minds, our will to be freer from sin. But also, not only that, but he makes us more like Christ in our actual lives. There's something that truly happens to us. We are truly not only set apart, but we are setting ourselves apart from God. It's kind of captured in that old song. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The places I used to go, I don't go anymore. The things I used to listen to, I don't listen anymore. For you and I, there ought to be a pattern of our life where we are becoming more free from sin and more like Christ. It ought to be happening in our lives. If not, the Bible says to test and examine to see whether or not you're in the faith or that you're abiding in the vine, as we were speaking of earlier in our Sunday school class, is that you and I are sanctified. And so sanctification is a progressive work of God, and it makes us more like Christ and freer and freer from sin. Now, There are three stages. Let me give you this real quickly. There are three stages of sanctification. The first one is there's a definite beginning at the new birth, at regeneration. Christ begins, or Christians begin to grow in holiness when we are born again. And so I want to take a moment and I say, there are some of you, especially as we we look on here, have you been born again? If you're here now and you're a, a young person, Have you been born again? Have you truly realized that you need to have a new birth, that there is a regeneration that must happen? Paul hints at this when he says, but you were washed when he speaks to the Corinthians. He says, you once were this, but now you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. 
So at the time of salvation, you and I will see a measure of sanctification at that time. There will be new desires, a new knowledge, and a new response to that. The second stage is what we've been talking about is when we see an increase throughout our lives. We don't stay as baby Christians, but we grow. Paul says, and we all be, we, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image of the Son. The Christian does not stay the same. Instead, a believer is transformed into the same image, speaking of Christ throughout our lives. And then the third one is it's made complete at death. Your job at sanctification is never completed. You never arrive in this age totally sinless. The author of Hebrews mentions people in heaven as spirits of the righteous that are made perfect. That is, believers will ultimately complete their status or sanctification when they die, when God makes us perfect. That's the end of our salvation. It's the glorification that you and I are praying for and anticipating. We see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's many who would proclaim today and preach that there is a sinless perfection. There are many that I've talked to, even here in our church in the past, that say, well, I do not sin. I have no issues. We must recognize that sin is always with us until that final day. However, as Christians, we can Look forward to a completed holiness in heaven after death. So as we look at this, Christ has set us apart as he set apart Jerusalem, as he set apart um, the temple. We have been sanctified as they have. What we have to realize then is that we need to live our lives as God has sanctified us. There is an inspection that is coming. And so you and I must consider these wonderful truths of sanctification where Christ or God is doing a work in our hearts. You and I must understand that as God's children, we are the new temple. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that's within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price So glorify God in your body. It's like what's happening here in Jerusalem. The people begin to think that the Jerusalem, the holy city of God, was their town, was their community, and they could do what they want. They could allow in who they want, and they'll reject who they want. Or the high priest and those who say, no, this is our temple. We'll do with it what we want. But the Bible is saying, no, if you here have been regenerated, if you have the new birth, then you are not your own, but you and I, are living our lives as if it's ours. That we will never have to give an account to Christ, the one who will judge the living and dead, who will bring all of our works and make them manifest. Christian, I want to go on. For Paul says, what agreement has the God of the temple of God with idols? You say, I have no idols. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. You and I have plenty of idols. It's just not a stone Buddha. It's not a wooden tree cut up and decorated. At least I pray that's not happening here within our congregation. 
But you and I have idols, pleasure, our jobs, our retirement investment, our family, our children, a spouse. We have all sorts of idols, things that we put before God. Some are great and some are simple. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, Paul says. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where you go, the, ten, the, the, the spirit goes. What you ingest, the spirit is ingesting, so to speak. What we think we're bringing into the temple. You and I have profaned the temple of God very often acting as if one day there is no inspection. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want to focus on three areas that Jesus will inspect. The first one is our lives, our very being. In Matthew chapter 7, you can turn to these if you want to. We're going to be in Matthew and then 1 Corinthians, but in Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 17 with me. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears uh, bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad, uh, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What he's speaking about is whether or not you're sanctified. Are you, are you fulfilling the, your purpose in life? Or is it false advertising? Would your friends and family be surprised to hear that you are a Christian? Would they look at your life, your thoughts, your words, your actions, and say, wow, that is healthy fruit. And you can usually tell if you healthy fruit by looking at your marriage, looking at your relationship with your children, looking at your relationship with, uh, with, your, with your family, and so on and so forth with work. Are you producing the fruits of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? He says, I will inspect that one day. And if you're bearing bad fruit, then you're going to be cut down and thrown away. So you and I think that you and I have these idle moments when no one is watching or we just feel that we can get away with something not realizing that there are no idle moments in the eyes of God. There are no just giveaways. There, there's no takebacks. All of that will be judged, the great and the small. And so Jesus is going to inspect our lives. What will he find? Will he find a den of robbers and thieves? Will he find a city that is broken down? that profess they want Christ, but yet they truly reject his word. Not only that, he's also going to inspect in the same way our identity in our work. Look at Matthew chapter 7 going on in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
You and I need to understand that just because we profess Christ does not make us Christ followers. He says there are many who do this and then do great things. Now, again, look at this passage. You've heard me say this before. Jesus doesn't come back and say, no, you didn't exercise anyone. You didn't heal anyone in my name. No, he may. He, yeah, you did. But you truly weren't one of mine. There are pastors and churches today that are professing Christ. I passed one on my way today, but yet there is no Christian in it. There's no Christian testimony, or I should say. They have a, an illusion of the things of God, but yet they're missing the milk and the meat. And we wonder, how do these continue to grow? But our identity and our lives will one day be inspected. It will be confirmed whether or not. You're just not going to be able to walk in and say, oh, I'm a Christian. It will be inspected. And then going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we spoke about this last week as the church and the community. Is where one day even our church itself will be inspected. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's that passage we spoke about last week or maybe the week before. I'm not sure which day we spoke on it. Where Paul says, I'm building a foundation. It says, all that we do will be tried by fire. You will either have gold and jewel and precious stones, or you're going to have wood, hay, and stubble. And we've talked about this before. I won't belabor the point, but all of our works will be tried by fire, gold, jewels, and precious stones. Those things that are the fruit of the Spirit, they will last because the gold it refines. It's something you could then mold and make as, as a gift, as a treasure. However, wood, hay, and stubble, the works of the flesh, will just be burnt up, and you and I will give ashes to God. He says, let not your church be like that. He's speaking mainly about the church community. I'd like for you to take your Bibles again and turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, I'm just going to add this one if I could. We spoke about it real quickly in our adult core class. I want you to see it for yourself. Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. And in there we see Jesus' letter to, letters to seven churches. Each one he's given them kind of a word of praise, but also a word of judgment, a word of warning. In Revelation chapter 3, let's look at the one of Laodicea. Look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, again, that's not saying there that, that if you're cold or you're hot, he's going to spit you out either. The, the cold and hot, again, as I said earlier in our adult core classes, one is refreshing, one is comfort. When you take up a beverage, you want it one or the other. You typically don't want lukewarm water, lukewarm soup, lukewarm whatever. You want it either hot or cold to, to a various degree. He says here in verse 17, he's in other words, he says, you're not, you're not refreshing and you're not giving comfort. Look at verse 17. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, nor realizing that you are, not, and I have need of nothing. So the church thinks that they have everything they need. They, God is blessing them. They have lots of people. The tithing is going well, whatever it might be. 
But he says, you don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes on to say, I counsel you to buy, I'm sorry, I lost my place, to buy from me gold refined by fire, verse 18. Verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So God is calling the church itself is to be sanctified. We as gathered together are a group of sanctified people in which the church itself is not allowed to sin or allow sin to enter in. Hence why we believe in church discipline. We believe in church fellowship where we believe in praying for one another and encouraging one another and keeping one another accountable. But look at verse 20. This is a verse that gets misapplied many times, misinterpreted. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You might have seen this. There's an old picture of that. I don't know, painting. you might have had one in your home. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Many times that has been interpreted as an offer of salvation. However, that's not what it's speaking of. Remember, it is a letter to a church that is not performing as it should. It was false advertising. They were saying one thing, they were doing another. They said they were something else. However, they were the exact opposite. So what Jesus is saying is one day, I will expect your house, your church. And I'm knocking and I want to come in and I want to be part of your gathering. I want to be more than just a place you attend, a place you mark off and say, I've done my duty. I want to be a place where I can come in and be part of you. Look what verse 21 says. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit, um, sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sit down with my father. He who has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I'm saying all that to say that even our church is we need to recognize that God is going to inspect us. There's no power in being large. There's no power in being small or money's given or money's not giving. But he wants to know if we have been faithful to what God has called us to. Are we faithfully evangelizing, discipling, fellowshipping, worshiping, are we doing that which God has called us to do? Many times I wonder, well, Father, is the one reason we're not growing and we're not getting new people is because we're not faithful? Are you not here when we gather? And I have to tell you, it's a question that we and the elders, we sometimes pray and have to ask. You know, we had our, we had, we, where, where's everyone from Easter. By the way, Easter Sunday, the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after Christmas is always our lowest attendance, always. And I know I'm speaking to the choir. But what God has called us is to be faithful, not to have more programs, not to have more this and that, but to be faithful to be who God has called us to be. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there is an inspection coming. We are to be sanctified. Let us not be joined with Jerusalem in the temple in hearing the judgment and the warnings of God against us. Colossians says here, I'm going to leave this on the monitor here for you. 
If you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. I can guarantee you that if you take this to heart and you put your mind on the things that are above and if you set your minds on the things above and if you seek those things, then God will be ready, you will be ready for the inspection that's coming. You will be ready to face our judge, but also our Savior. Let us have that type of confidence, that type of bold assurance. With every head bowed and every head closed, I'm going to ask Randy and the worship team to come up. You and I are called to do three things in our sanctification. How we can be ready for that inspection. Number one, you need to yield to the Spirit's work. That's God's work in you. You do that by listening to the Word of God, by listening to your elders, by, by, by pursuing the things of God. Number, number two is you put off. You put off those things of the flesh from Colossians chapter 3. In the same way, you put on the things that God has called us to put on. And that way, we'll be ready for that inspection. Father, I pray that you help us to be ready for that inspection. I pray if there's any here that do not know you, Lord, that you would bring them to your salvation, to a knowledge of you. Father, if there's any here that are struggling in that inspection, Father, I pray that you would sanctify them, help them to see the work that you're doing. And Father, we pray and look forward to that day when we stand before you and you dwell with us and be our, be our God. In your name we pray. Amen. Randy, would you come and close us with our pastor's prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.